You have these sheets in your seat. We're going to talk about those at the end. Put them away right now. I know some of you are looking at stuff. Well, stop it. And we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so I like to know the story behind the story. In the Middle Ages, they did things that we don't do today, and we have some common sayings that kind of were born from what they did, and so I thought I would give you a couple of examples of that. Uh, most of the houses were built of thatch, no plywood underneath. They didn't have plywood, obviously, and so a thatch roof is simply uh, uh, a thick layer of grass, and so... Uh, it was a great place for, some of these houses were sort of built into the, to the walls, uh, to a, a hill, and so uh, that kind of saved them construction costs and that kind of thing. And so the animals would get into the thatched roof because it was warmer, especially in the winter. But when there was a deluge, uh, it would sometimes wash the animals off of the roof. And that's where we get the expression, it's raining cats and dogs. I think that's interesting. Uh, follow me here. Uh, Baths were taken with some measure of irregularity. If you were a noble person, you might take a bath once a month. Uh, most commoners took a bath about once every, uh, four times a year, once every quarter. And so the way the bath time worked, uh, they would have a big tub of hot water. And um, the man of the house would go first, the way God intended. And uh, so the man of the house would go first. And then uh, all the men, the boys, etc., and then uh, the wife, and then uh, all the, the girls, and eventually you'd get down to the baby. She was last, or he was last. The babies were last, and the water would be so dirty that that's where we get the expression, don't throw the baby out with the bath water. Yes, right, that's right. Um, I, I attended a very lovely wedding within the last month. And the bride carried a beautiful bouquet. Most of the time you go to weddings, the brides have bouquets. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because uh, in the Middle Ages they didn't bathe as often as we do. Uh, brides, uh, typically one of the months where you would have a bath would be in May. Uh, the weddings would happen typically in June. And by June there was some measure of stinkness uh, that was beginning to uh, take hold. And so the bouquet uh, one would wear and uh, carry in order to kind of mask that smell. And so next time you go to a wedding uh, and she's carrying a bouquet, you can giggle uh, under your breath because you know uh, the origin. They would drink alcohol, uh, beer and whiskey and such things, out of lead cups. And there was uh, occasionally there would be an a, a adverse reaction to those chemicals. A person might pass out because of that combination. Um, if a person was found on the road passed out, they would carry them into the kitchen, put them on the kitchen table. Uh, they would invite friends over. They would eat and drink and hope that they would wake up. This is the tradition uh, that became awake because you didn't kind of know. Now, in England, when they would bury people, they would bury them in a casket, but uh, space was limited and they would sometimes want to reuse those spaces. So after a while, they would um, exhume the casket take the bones out of the casket, put it in a boneyard, and then they would uh, reuse that plot, that area. What they found when they dug up some of these caskets, about one in 25, they found scratch marks on the inside of the casket, uh, which means they were burying people alive. 
which is kind of a bad practice. Uh, if you think about it, you really don't want to do that too much. And so they devised this ingenious strategy to, uh, to not do that anymore. They would tie a string around the arm of the corpse or the person that they presumed dead. Uh, they, would ran it, they ran it through the casket, through the ground. Uh, they would attach it to a bell. And so this is where we get the expression, uh, saved by the bell. So if you were buried, you could ring the bell. They had to have somebody out there watching at night. That was called the graveyard shift. All right, so now you know stuff. You can walk away today not know anything about the Bible, but you learn something about other things. And it's difficult for us to think about a world where you take four baths a year and animals are living in your roof and, you know, people don't know if they're dead or not, you know, and, and, and everybody's stinky. I mean, we've come a long way since the Middle Ages. In fact, some of these inventions of running water and, and such, I know some of that's ancient, but for most people to have those sorts of things, uh, it's relatively modern. And it's kind of hard for us to, to imagine living in a place kind of like that. Well, today we're talking about something that happened 3,500 years ago. So things that happened in the Old Testament are different than things that happened in the New Testament and even today. And so you have to understand we're talking about something called the Ark of the Covenant today. We're going to be in Exodus 25, and that's where God says, Hey, I want you to build this thing for me, and I'm going to tell you why he said it, and I'm going to hopefully explain to you why we don't need it anymore now. Okay? So the Ark of the Covenant, it was this box that God said, I want you to build this. It's going to be this sacred um, uh, thing uh, that, you know, I'm not going to live there, God is saying, but it's going to represent my presence with you. It's representative. So you understand 3,500 years ago, everybody had gods and everybody had idols. Everybody. So the Jews were different. They had a God. He, in fact, one of the Ten Commandments is don't make any graven image of me. So we're not supposed to have... They, they didn't worship this box, but it represented God's presence. And so we've been looking at these objects and these rituals and these events in the Old Testament that sort of point us to Jesus. Well, this one points us to Jesus too, this Ark of the Covenant. It's sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of God. But we're going to call it the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to learn some things, and so let's walk through God saying, this is what I want you to do, and then we can maybe learn a couple things about today. So lesson number one from the ark is it's always been God's desire to be with his people. Exodus 25, 8 and 9 says, make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I'll show you. Okay, so the tabernacle is this tent it's portable, it's mobile, uh, they move from place to place, they build this while they're in the wilderness. Remember, they were enslaved in Egypt, God miraculously delivers them through the uh, leadership of Moses. God says to Moses, I need you to build this tent, and I'm going to dwell kind of with you, it's going to be a representation of me being with you uh, in the wilderness. Inside this tent called a tabernacle. Um, and don't get confused, there's a tabernacle that's portable. Eventually, they built something called the temple that's permanent. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But in this tabernacle, there were to be certain objects that were sacred. And this was where they would offer sacrifices to uh, receive forgiveness from God. And 
And you're probably asking, I think it's a fair question to say, well, why did they need to do that? Well, God chose to interact with people differently then than he does now. Now, God was never limited. It wasn't like God was only there. In fact, we see verses like this, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth. He's always looking, he's always everywhere. There's a big theological word called omnipresent. That means always present. He's always around. That didn't shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God has always been the same, but he interacted with people differently than than now. Now, he says, all right, build this tent. It's going to represent my presence with you. Put this sacred item, this ark, and this is what you're to do. Have them make an ark. Now, when you hear the word ark, a lot of times you think of Noah's ark. This is different than that. It's a box. It's kind of like a cedar chest. It's not huge. I'll, I'll give you the dimensions in a minute. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Now, I looked up what, what is a cubit, because that's not a, a, a term of measurement that we uh, use. It was basically 18 inches from, the, uh, from your elbow to the tip of your finger. Some of you are tempted to measure it right now because that's what you do. And I understand that. I measured mine. Mine was 18 inches. Really interesting. So uh, don't do it now. You could like use your phone, I guess, to do it. Uh, but you shouldn't uh, because we're going to talk about other things. But it's 18 inches. So basically this box that God says for them to build is, generally speaking, four feet wide, two feet deep, two feet tall. Ish, ish. I mean, it's not exact, but that's about what it is. About the size of my mother's cedar chest in her house. So you kind of get an idea around this. It's a box, and it's not just not this huge box. And God wanted them to feel like he was there. And we do stuff to make us feel like, to, to feel connected uh, it might be, oh, you wear a wedding ring. I wear a wedding, wedding ring. It helps me feel connected. And so this is symbolic, and I wear it, and I've had this one on a long time, and I, it, it helps me feel connected. Or you might have a cross necklace. It helps you feel connected. Or, or maybe you get a tattoo, and that tattoo helps you feel, uh, there's something about it, and, and it helps you feel connected. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's cool. I read an interesting ad a couple of weeks ago. Uh, th this was it. Um, you can make a diamond out of your dead pet, uh, is basically what this is. Let me read the, the script. Shine a bright light on your memories with your beloved pet by turning your furry friend into a magnificent memorial diamond. You can do this. I like the way they made the paw, the other half of the heart. It's very sweet. All right, so inside, it says inside the chest, inside the ark, you're to store the tablets, the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments that I will give you as a witness to our covenant. And a couple of weeks ago, we defined covenant as this agreement, kind of a, a contract. And God said, hey, here are the Ten Commandments. If you want to uh, be in, uh, in covenant with me, if you want to be uh, in relationship with me, then this is sort of what I have uh, an expectation that you'll do. And then he says, 
uh, build a cover for the chest. So this, this box needed a cover, put a, a lid on it basically. Uh, the lid of the chest, make it out of pure gold. It's to be known as the seat of mercy. We'll talk about that in a second. Where sins are atoned. Fashion two winged guardians, they're called cherubim, out of hammered gold, and place them at both ends of the seat of mercy. Put one winged guardian at each end. Now, in 1989, a movie came out, in fact, it's 1981, a movie came out, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas uh, created a film called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, some of you have probably seen that. Um, the premise behind the movie was Hitler, uh, before he started to try to conquer the world, uh, sent out a, a team of explorers to find the Ark of the Covenant. Really kind of ironic that uh, Hitler would want a Jewish box, but he did. And he had read the Old Testament, or somebody had read the Old Testament and said, hey, this is a powerful box, dude. You might want to have this box. And if you read in the Old Testament, they would take the, the Ark of the Covenant and when they go into battle, oftentimes they would take it, uh, Jericho, when they defeated Jericho, when Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, uh, the first thing that went before them was the Ark of the Covenant. And so knowing this history, uh, the, um, the Nazis decided, oh, well, this is a powerful thing. And if we can capture this box, we will capture the presence of God. And this is kind of what it looked like. And you can see there are angels on the top. And I'm not sure how accurate this is, but this, I guess, is as good. Nobody, kinda, nobody has a drawing of it. So this is as good as anything as to what it is. And at the end of the movie, toward the end of the movie, they find the ark and the Nazis lift the lid. And uh, one guy says, uh, it is beautiful. Uh, and then his face melts. And so uh, um, uh, the elders want me to let you know, uh, this is not an endorsement of that particular movie. Uh, but it was, uh, it, was, it, it was depicting the power of, of, the, of the ark. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, there's a book called 1 Samuel, and it has the story of the, the Israelites began to treat this holy object uh, with too much familiarity. They, they began to treat it just as if it was a talisman or a, a good luck charm. It was their rabbit's foot, and if they were having difficulty in war, they would pull out the Ark of the Covenant to defeat their enemies. And they tried that one too many times. And they were battling the Philistines, and the Philistines defeated them and captured the ark. And, and it was a traumatic moment in the life of Israel. The ark was captured, and the Philistines put it on a cart, and they hauled it to Philistine territory, and everybody around it, it was almost like it was nuclear. It was radioactive. Everybody around it began to get tumors, and they were like, we don't want this anymore, and they sent it back. And in the movie, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's this idea that the ark eventually was uh, captured by the CIA, and it's in a warehouse somewhere uh, in America. But truth be told, nobody exactly knows where the ark went. It's funny. It, was, it must have been men in charge of it, and they should have just asked their wives, Hey, honey, I can't find the ark, because uh, nobody can find the ark. Nobody knows where it is. So there's these great theories around this. It's really interesting. I'm going to give you some history. If you don't like history, I'll give you permission for five minutes to look at your sheet. Uh, but really interesting stuff. Now, the Ethiopians, they claim to have the ark in this, 
nondescript kind of a, a church, an Ethiopian Orthodox church, that looks much like a, a bomb bunker. And they say, well, we have the ark, and this is why they think they have it. Now, if you've read uh, your New Testament in, in Acts chapter 8, there was an Ethiopian uh, dignitary who came kind of on a spiritual journey. He's in Jerusalem around the area. Uh, he's, on, he's in a chariot, which means he's quite prominent and has quite a bit of money. He worked for the queen. And he's reading the book of Isaiah. And this one of Jesus' disciples named Philip comes by and he hears him reading the, the book of Isaiah. And he says, do you know what you're reading? And the guy goes, I don't have any idea what I'm reading. I, I got no clue what this means. And Philip explains it to him that Isaiah was talking about a Messiah and the Messiah was Jesus. And this guy, this Ethiopian who was a dignitary for the queen, he is baptized and goes back. And the Ethiopian Orthodox Church believes that was the founding of their church. But even more interesting, they believe their connection to Judaism goes way back. So, if you know the history of the chronology of, of the kings of Israel, there was Saul, and then the next guy was David, and David had a son named Solomon. And if you've heard of Solomon, Solomon was considered the wisest man to ever live. And Solomon studied, and he was smart. He was obviously quite brilliant. He had tons of money. Uh, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. If you don't know what a concubine is, it's just like a porcupine, only different. Uh, and so he had all of these women in his life. And there's a story about uh, the queen of Sheba coming to pick the brain. See, Solomon has... He, he has renowned worldwide being so wise. And so this queen of Sheba, Ethiopia, she comes to visit Solomon. And the story goes, the legend goes, that Solomon and the queen of Sheba, they uh, become romantic, they marry, they have a son. His name is Menelik. So the queen of Sheba and Menelik, they go back to Ethiopia. Menelik becomes a little older. He goes and visits his dad up in Israel. Solomon welcomes him. Menelik, dude, I'm glad to see you. This is kind of how this goes. I've got this ark. Would you like to take it back to Ethiopia? And so that's one theory of how the ark got to Ethiopia. But there are, there are scads of theories. So underneath Jerusalem, there are, there are these... There are these caves and, and catacombs and, and tunnels, tons and tons of this stuff. Some of it's never even been investigated. It's just, there's just this network of, it's, it's like, like these, these, these corridors that are underneath that have been carved out of the, the rock there. And so one theory is that Solomon in his wisdom foresaw a day when Israel would be overrun. And so... He made a compartment in the wall, maybe a, a little cave, a divot in the wall. And he uh, was thinking, okay, if we're ever invaded and we can't defend ourselves, then we can take the ark and we can spirit it away and we can put it in this, this box, this, this hole in the wall and cover it up and the invading army won't be able to find it. And many scholars, or at least some scholars, believe that Solomon built the, the, the hole that later on another king comes along. His name is Josiah. Josiah the king, he uh, is overrun. The Babylonians defeat them. 
And so Josiah sees the Babylonians coming, and they whisk the ark away, and they put it in the, the opening design for the ark, and they cover it up, and nobody finds it. And the notion is it's still there. If you knew where it was, you could find it. Other people believe that uh, the ark was destroyed. King Josiah was overrun by the Babylonians. The Babylonians, it makes, now this kind of makes sense. The Babylonians see this relic. Uh, they destroy it for the gold because it would have had lots of gold. It was covered inside and out with gold. The top was pure gold. That would have been worth a lot of money. And so maybe they just destroyed it and took it for the gold. There's one guy by the name of uh, Lee Rettmeyer. Um, he has done some work around th that area. So if you know about the history of Jerusalem, there was a temple there. It was destroyed uh, in 70 A.D., uh, never to be rebuilt um, the, the temple was destroyed twice. Uh, Herod rebuilt it, and then it was destroyed again. And eventually, during the Crusades, the Muslims came in, and they built something that's there now called the Dome of the Rock. And it's a kind of a um, mosque kind of thing. And you can't really do research around that because nobody wants you to. They don't allow you to. But this guy has investigated, and he thinks that there was the Holy of Holies, this kind of most holy place, and the Ark of the Covenant is under the Dome of the Rock. That's, that's his notion. Now, what's interesting to me is that this ark, which had such great significance for the people of God, is here, and then all of a sudden, it's not here. And the idea is, well, where did it go? But here's what we need to know for today. Because what we have to understand is Jesus changes everything for the better. And Jesus came along, and there was no need any longer for the ark. The ark was part of their act of worship. It was in this most holy place. And so in, in the, the tabernacle and eventually in the temple, the ark was in the center. Uh, it was covered. It was surrounded by a, a wall of, of uh, curtain. Uh, only one person went in once a year to offer a sacrifice. The high priest would, would um, sacrifice an animal. He would come into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle some blood on top of the ark. And the, the nation of Israel, their sins were forgiven. One man, once a year. And yet, Jesus changes things. So he says right before he's crucified to his disciples... It is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate, what he's talking about here is the Holy Spirit. If I don't, the advocate won't come, and if I do go away, then I will send him to you. Now, this next one is awesome, now that you have the history. Do you not know that you are the temple? You are God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives in you. God has always wanted to be with his people. Before it was corporate. Now it's individual. You. I mean, now that you understand, oh, the temple is where the Holy of Holies was. That's where the very presence of God is. Well, that's you. If you want it to be. It's not everybody. It's people who become followers of Jesus. So the second point is, you can be a temple. You can be his people. He said, have them make the ark of acacia wood. 
Does anybody, just as an aside, anybody remember uh, what the Noah's Ark was built out of? It was a different kind of wood. You remember? Gopher wood, that's right. Not to be confused with mole wood. Uh, gopher wood. All right, so, smarty pants. Paul got that answer. Uh, I'm going put you on the spot, Paul. Uh, oh, I, was, uh, I, I already had the answers up there. Don't look. Uh, so the reason they picked acacia wood was because it was everywhere. If you lived in the wilderness, you didn't have a lot of wood, but the wood you did have was acacia wood. And I began to think about that. The picture of this is perfect. God picks what's available, even with people. Now, in Scripture, there are some brilliant guys. Paul, Paul, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew all the law. He was really, really smart. He was a student of Gamaliel, who was one of the key rabbis. Paul was brilliant. But not everybody God uses is brilliant. You don't have to be brilliant. I mean, think about it. In the history, I came up with a few. In the Old Testament, Rahab is a prostitute. I mean, he'll use anybody. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a fraidy cat. Abraham was a liar. Sarah was skeptical. Moses was a murderer and a mumbler, which is funny to me. Uh, Miriam was jealous. Esther was timid. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a womanizer. Peter was arrogant. His nickname was Rocky. Rocky was cocky. Uh, so you have this history of God choosing losers. <laughs> I'm glad uh, you didn't say like you. Uh, but it's true. Uh, here's the deal. Are you, are you messed up? You qualify. God chooses to use anybody who's available and willing you don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be gifted. You just have to be available. In the 1800s, there was a guy named Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody. And Moody was this guy, and he, he wasn't very bright. He, was, he became a, a shoe salesman for his uncle. And he started going to church. And back then, to become a member of the church, you had to kind of go through a council. And he sat through the council, and they said... No, dude, you don't know enough yet. We can't let you be a member yet. So he kept going to church. He wasn't dissuaded. He came back a year later. One guy said, well, you're not any smarter, but you sure are dedicated. We're going to let you in. And God used that guy, and he preached around the world, and hundreds of thousands of souls were saved. God will use who's available. And there are texts like this that say, God is working in you. You know what? You don't have to know it all. You don't have to be very smart. You don't have to be very gifted. I'm glad that God uses some people that are brilliant. C.S. Lewis was brilliant and God used him. Dallas Willard was brilliant and God used him. There are some people that are just brilliant and God uses them. But it's not most people. In fact, the vast majority of people God uses are just plain old acacia wood people. They're just around. They're just here. And God uses people and he equips them. There's a rabbi named Isaiah Horowitz and he talks about, you know, it said the, the ark was covered on the inside and out with gold. And he said that symbolizes that we have to be the same on the inside as we are on the outside. You know who God uses? People that are honest. People that are open. People that are the same inside and out. 
Jesus warned about people who weren't. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're pretty on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. He's like, one of the, one of the greatest messages of the ark is God will use you. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be smart. You just have to be willing. You have to be honest. Uh, that's all it takes. Now, inside the ark, they put three things eventually. At the beginning, it was only the, the stone tablets, but there were stone tablets, and there, were, uh, there was this pot of manna. Remember uh, when they were walking in the wilderness, God provided food, uh, manna, and then there was this staff. There was this sort of challenge to Moses' leadership and his brother Aaron, and Aaron had a walking staff, and this walking staff, which obviously had been cut, uh, they put him on the ground, and this thing budded, and so they put that in the ark. And there's symbolism even in that. Um, the Ten Commandments represents God's instruction. Uh, the manna represents God's provision. The, the staff that budded represents God, like resurrection and growth. And all those things are, are part of us when we become a follower of Jesus. He, he directs us. He provides for us. He gives us growth, a new life. And so in many ways, we're kind of like the contents of the ark. Mercy, if you want it, you can have it. It is available for the asking. And he's talking about build a cover for the chest out of pure gold. It will be known as the seat of mercy where sins are atoned. Where sins are atoned. And the cover was supposed to have, we saw it in that picture of the uh, Raiders of the Last Ark, these two angels, and they're called cherubs, and Raphael painted a, a picture, or Raphael, uh, cherubs. It's not like this, by the way, nothing like this. These angelic creatures, they, they, um, they were sort of God's attendants, the cherubs, the cherubim, uh, that's the plural. So if you'll recall from the Old Testament, Adam and Eve are, are driven out of the garden and he places cherubim in front of the entrance so they couldn't come back. This is sort of their task. They are people, they are creatures, not people, who are, were dedicated to attending to the needs of God or what he or desires of God. In the, in the tabernacle, there were these little ones. In the temple, they built huge ones, 15 feet tall, just huge and the idea was that on this top of this box, once a year, high priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of animals on the top of this box called the mercy seat. And that one day, once a year, was called the Day of Atonement. And atonement, if you break it down, one of the easiest ways I remember what atonement means, it means that you're at one with somebody. So... Sometimes we get sideways with someone, you know, it might be your, your spouse or your coworker or your child. And, and so you, you're living in conflict. And you, I, I mean, I, I've never experienced that, but uh, I know people that have. And, and so you live in conflict and it's no fun, you know, it's kind of it's uh, difficult. Well, atonement is when that all gets fixed. And I, I read a, this lady named Kelly Sims writes about uh, having a, a day with her daughter. And she writes, 
I'd had a pretty hectic day with my four-year-old daughter. When bedtime finally came, uh, I laid down the law and gruffly said, we're going to put on your PJs, brush your teeth, read one book, lights out. Her little arms went around my neck in a gentle embrace, and she said, last week in Sunday school, we learned about little boys and little girls who don't have mommies or daddies. And now Kelly Sims, she says, she says even I, I've just been the grouch, and I thought, she is still grateful for me. And tears start to well up in my eyes, and then she whispered, maybe you can go be their mommy. That is not atonement. Uh, that is uh, at notment is what that is. All right, so what the Jews believed was the ark didn't contain God. This box, God wasn't in the box. But the presence of God was around the box. And when there was an offering and when the blood was put on the offering, uh, on, the, uh, on the altar there on the top of this mercy seat, that God's glory came down. In the Old Testament, it's called the Shekinah glory. And, and the tough thing for Jewish people today is, I don't know how their sins are atoned for. Because God's prescription for salvation was blood. And we don't like to think about it. And we're modern people, and we, we kind of cringe at the idea of a sacrifice. But even in the New Testament, it says sins cannot be forgiven without a, a blood being shed, without a blood sacrifice. And we don't like it. God has prescribed other things I don't particularly like, but that doesn't make them not true. Now, the book of Hebrews is very Jewish. Um, the authorship is in question. Um, many believe it was Paul, but it probably was somebody else. It really doesn't matter. Whoever wrote it was writing to Jews. They were trying to convince them, hey, 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 that ark thing, that mercy seat thing, we don't need that anymore. And about the time when the Old Testament, there's an intertestament period, there's Old Testament, New Testament, and then there's a period in between. And about that time, they started to think, okay, well, if we can't, we don't have a temple anymore. We don't have a tabernacle anymore. We don't have a mercy seat anymore. So what we'll do is we'll substitute being obedient to the law so that we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. And that's what they're depending on for salvation. But that's not what God prescribed. That was a, a man's, all right, well, we can't do that, so we'll do something else. Now, we've said a lot of stuff about the temple and all that. L let me show you, we're kinda, we'll wrap it up, but let me show you a couple things. Again, in Hebrews, written to the Jewish audience, but we get a lot out of it. He writes, or she writes, Christ entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So there's our language. Christ entered the most holy place only once and for all time. He didn't take with him the blood of goats and calves. He sacrificed his own blood, and by it he sets us free from sin. And the most important word in the sentence he sets us free from sin. What is it? Forever. We don't have to do this thing once a year, every year. One dude, one place. Every, every Yom Kippur, we have to go to Jerusalem and make this sacrifice and sprinkle the blood. Jesus did it once, forever. 
Jesus changes everything for the better. There's a general named Pompey. He was a Roman. In 63 BC, he went into Jerusalem. The temple was still standing. He goes into the temple. He pulls back the curtain. There's nothing there. Maybe there's no ark anymore because we don't need the ark anymore. Maybe God let the ark be destroyed or God let the ark be hidden because you don't need it anymore. I think it's really significant that it's not around anymore. I mean, it was God's design. He's the one that prescribed it. He's the one that wanted it. This was how sacrifices were going to be made. These are how sacrifices were supposed to be made. And now it's just not there anymore. All right, let me show you one more thing. About 600 years before Jesus, there was a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Now, this was when the ark was still around, temple was still around. 600 years before Jesus, Jeremiah writes this. There's coming a day when you will no longer wish for the good old days of long ago, when you possessed the ark of God's covenant. Those days will not be missed or even thought about, and the ark will not be reconstructed, for the Lord himself will be among you. 600 years before Jesus... There was a prediction. We're not going to need the ark forever. <laughs> I've, I've read through the Bible, I don't know, 20, 30 times. I, I don't know that I've ever noticed that verse. That is a really cool verse. He's like, he, he basically, he didn't know Jesus, but he knew a Messiah was coming. And he basically said, hey, Jesus changes everything. In fact, people wanting an ark would be moving backwards. Because what's better? Offering a sacrifice once a year, every year, one guy going into the Holy of Holies? Or is it better to have one sacrifice for all time, forevermore? Well, it's, it's better one time for all time. Would you rather have a monthly subscription or a one time where you never have to think about it again? I mean, it's just pretty simple. There used to be this, this thing you had to do, and you had to do it over and over, and now you don't. And this, this curtain, let me show you one more verse. This curtain that surrounded the, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant at one time resided, but not when Jesus was there. It wasn't even there anymore. But the Holy of Holies, the, the, the temple was still there, and the curtain was still there. And then Jesus shed his blood on the cross and he died. And when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn into two pieces. And this is really significant. The tear started at the top and tore all the way to the bottom. Because God is always the one who seeks his people. Torn from top to bottom. When Adam and Eve sinned, who went looking for who? It was, it was God who went looking for them. Adam, where are y'all? It's how he said it, because he was Southern. Uh, Adam, where are y'all? That's what he said. This ark, which was a temporary way of having our sins, their sins forgiven, we don't need it anymore. See, you can see Jesus in the ark in a couple of ways. 
He is God with us. Remember when he was born, he was called Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus is the one, he's the one who gives mercy. You don't need an animal sacrifice anymore on a mercy seat to accomplish atonement. Now you have Jesus. And Jesus is the one who came so that if you want to be part of the team, you can be. It's almost football season. That's about to start. And some of you all will come in here. In fact, I saw some today. Some people were Clemson. Is that how you're supposed to say it? With a P, even though it's not a P in there? Because you people are crazy. Uh, Clemson. And, and so you'll wear your Clemson gear. And then some of you will wear your Gamecock gear. And... Uh, when, when that week happens and they play each other, uh, I pray very hard for our church, you know, Lord, uh, help there not be division, you know, and that kind of thing. Because you want people to know what team you're on. You, you want people to, to know you're representing your team. I get it. Christ died for us so that we can be part of his team. He made that one sacrifice for all time so that we don't have to hope in a mercy seat with one dude one time a year offering some blood sacrifice that we hope takes. There's this confidence that we receive when we have Christ in our hearts. He changes everything for the better. Father, thank you for the ark and the picture it was of the Messiah who was to come. And we thank you for Jesus. And we pray especially that we would walk in the truth that Jesus is the way. We pray it in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.